This is Artist Soapbox. Through interviews and original scripted audio fiction, we deliver stories that speak to your hearts and your minds. Greetings, Soapboxers. I am delighted to share my interview with Jeff Jones as we discuss the concept of care of community and company through the lens of intimacy direction, a growing field in both the theater and film television industries. Jeff A.R. Jones has staged fights and or intimacy for over 175 shows in theater, opera, and ballet. His fights have received rave reviews in the Washington Post and the New York Times. He is a fight director, certified teacher, and theatrical firearms instructor with the Society of American Fight Directors and a certified intimacy director with intimacy directors and coordinators. He is on faculty at Elon and William Peace University. Jeff is currently in the process of starting Triangle Intimacy Lab, a space to practice the craft of staged intimacy without the pressures or timeline of a production. Since this recording, I was accepted into the Level 3 certification program with Intimacy Directors and Coordinators, which Jeff refers to as IDC in this interview. It has and continues to be a life-affirming and career-affirming educational experience. I consider Jeff a great mentor and a close friend. A content warning. There are a couple mentions of staging scenes containing sexual assault. Nothing in detail, but it is mentioned a couple of times. Enjoy our chat. Hello, Jeff. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How are you? I am stellar. So I'm so glad that you are able to talk with me today. It feels like I have always known you, which is absolutely not true. (laughs) But I mean, I know I've been telling everyone that we're cousins for years, but I was just, (laughs) when did I meet Jeff? And I don't actually know. I do know that, correct me if I'm wrong, you were the fight choreographer for Titus Andronicus in 2005 at Fair yes. Theater. Which So that means that's the first piece of work of yours that I saw because Laura Bess is my best friend and she was Marcus, I believe, and Jesse Gephardt mm-hmm. is a good friend and he was Titus. So yep. I yep. don't know when we actually met, but I know at least when I encountered your work and thought, wow, that's a lot. And I'm pretty sure I've told you that I fainted at that show. <laughs> Yes, yes, you told me that. I'm glad, glad to have had such an impact. <laughs> Before I even knew you, I was like, wow, this guy. Cool. So, so glad you're here and glad that we're getting to talk about this relatively new facet of theater making and consent and safety. So I was wondering if we could begin with a brief description of what an intimacy director's role is, and then if you could talk a little bit about what your preparation process looks like. Yeah, sure. The role of the intimacy director is to both stage scenes of intimacy, and scenes of intimacy is a broad category. Most people hear scenes of intimacy and they think scenes of a sexual nature on stage. But it also includes, it can include flirting, it can include, definitely includes kissing, hugging, any kind of physical touching that needs to have a a sense of intimacy to it. It doesn't have to be romantic intimacy. It can be familial intimacy. It can be, can be violent intimacy. So 
it spans a big umbrella of things. And what we do is we bring tools and vocabulary for how to stage those scenes safely. The other thing that we do is we act as an advocate for the people who have to perform those scenes. So we follow the person who has to perform it to make sure that they're not going to experience any trauma while they're doing the performance, or they're not going to have any callbacks or flashbacks to previous traumas while they're doing that performance. And then we advocate for their needs with the director or producer or whoever it is, you know, ideally in a, in a very collaborative method. And all of my experiences thus far have been very, very collaborative, but also knowing, you know, what, what sort of chains of command and reporting there are for accountability. So that's sort of the, the nutshell version of what an intimacy director does. So what does preparation for this work look like? You know, I've done it a couple of times, but it's still very new to me and very, I think I'm still in the place where over-preparing quite a bit. And so I wondered, as someone with a bit more experience than me, what does your prep process look like? Yeah. So for the general, what I would say, first, you need to understand theater. You need to understand what makes for dramatic action how the body works, how the body tells a story, how you can tell story without text. So that, I think, is a big part of it, understanding things like things like sight lines, understanding that if you set it up this way, nobody's going to see it, understanding where the line is between real and performance, right? You can make something look real without it feeling real. So understanding that performance is not life. You know, people don't have to actually experience it to perform it. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. What a concept. Then understanding, you know, concepts of choreography, how to adjust things like tempo and rhythm and uh, directionality, body line, stuff like that. It just all is, you know, basic choreographic concepts. And then understanding how people respond to different impulses and how people engage in different impulses. Yeah, that is, I understand what you're saying, but I, I would love if you would expound upon that a little bit more. Yeah, so, so for example, if, if you reach out and touch someone's arm, and it's an unexpected touch, they might, you know, flinch and pull their arm away, which is a very different story than if you reach out and touch someone's arm, and they let your hand rest on their arm and maybe put their hand over top of your hand, which is sort of a more comforting empathetic feeling together kind of, you know, it's the same kind of touch, but that impulse reaction tells a completely different story. And understanding, even, even in that scenario, like, how does one impulse inform another? So if the, if the impulse is that sort of supportive gesture, where the hand reaches out and, and touches the arm, generates the impulse in the other person to like, put their hand on top of that hand, and maybe even squeeze it, right? because that is the, the kind of response to that. So where, where you get an impulse to do things, even the initial impulse, right? If, uh, and I do an exercise in a lot of my classes where we have one person stands there and exists and another person walks towards them and looks for little micro adjustments in the body that sort of say like, oh, I have discovered a boundary. And the first time you do it, people walk up like right up to each other and they sort of stand six inches away from each other's face. And 
as you're watching it, you realize like, oh, this person like crossed seven boundary lines they didn't identify. And so then you talk about like, what are the kinds of markers that you're seeing from the outside that, you know, the person's breath changes or their weight shifts, or they start to lean a little bit, or they, they start like, this is an odd one, people will start blinking really fast, or their, their fingers will start sort of like squeezing in and out. And once people start knowing what to look for, then like they start to go forward and they'll realize like, oh, I'm 25 feet away and I'm hitting a boundary where the person feels like they need to do something. They need to dress this person that's getting into their midst, right? And then we break the boundary and try to find the next one. And then we evolve it into a bunch of different things, trying to make the other person move while you're still at a distance, things like that. And this is just stuff we experience in normal life that we tend to ignore on stage. And the the sort of big example that I point to is like, if you're walking down the street and you see a person carrying a knife, the closest you will be is on the opposite side of the street, right? Mm -hmm. If you even continue towards them at all. But in a play, a character will see another character with a knife and they will walk right up to them and stand in their face and like present their chest, which is like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, why would you do that? So trying to find where actual human impulses lie and explore that so that when you start trying to recreate impulses, you've got a sense of how to, how to explore them. So that's, that's what I mean by impulse work. And so understanding like what, what things generate other things and what directions they can take. Because if, if somebody sort of moves towards you quickly, you might flinch back, but you might like set and prepare to receive you probably won't run forward immediately. You might start back and then decide the best thing to do is engage. But if you just start running forward, you've sort of denied the impulse that someone is charging at you. So looking at those, and they're all little. I mean, one of the things that I love about this work is it's like it's choreographing the minutia. So yeah, so that's what I mean by impulse work. Yeah, yeah. And then once you've got all of that down, then it's the understanding of different forms of touch sort of on a spectrum of familial or friendly up through sensual sexual and what does that look like what does it mean and then understanding what i would call sexual physical language and how it's how it's different it's different for different people it's different for different identities so you have to understand when you get to that end of the spectrum, how do people have sex? And there's not a single answer. There's a ton of different answers. But understanding all the different ways, and that's, that's something I'm still, I'm still learning tons about. So I would say that is what I would say is the preparation to be a good intimacy director. And people come at the work from a lot of different angles. There's some people who come at the work from like a sex therapy background. And so they're interested in sexual safety on set. They're interested in proper representation, especially within the LGBTQ community, that that the representation of sex is correct. And so they might come at it from that background, and then they've got to do the expanding within sort of the theatrical choreographic background. So people come to it from different angles, which brings different things, which makes it great to collaborate with other folks. I know that at least part of the perspective that you're coming from is as a fight choreographer. You know, you said that you're still sort of learning about what are the different ways to have sex conversation. Have you have you discovered other I don't want to say blind spots, but what pockets of knowledge did you 
sort of have to pick up on as you were beginning to do this work? Well, for example, there was a there was a, an online workshop a few months ago that I could not fit into my schedule, unfortunately, and it was an it was a workshop on kink and BDSM, which I haven't needed that for a show, but mm-hmm. if I did, I don't know much about it. Mm-hmm. So that's a space where I could definitely stand to have more learning. I know yeah. a little tiny bit, but I don't know enough to actually stage something. I do know there's a lot of actual consent practices that carry over from that into our work that are actually really, really healthy. So it has a lot of merit beyond just how people choose to choose to engage in, in pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like that's one that I'm signed up for one later in the month that's it's on that topic because that's where like I actually don't know a lot about this. So that kind of thing. And so is that what drew you to this work? What and what excites you about it? Like you said, came to it from a, a fight director background. I was working on a show. Well, you encounter it sometimes in fight scenes because if you're doing a show like Extremities that has a sexual assault in it, you have to stage that as a fight director. And back in the day, we just staged it and sort of told people what to do and where to go and where to put their hands and no sense of trying to make sure people were emotionally protected or safe because it was all about just the physical work. And we didn't think about what other safety needed to be in place. We were all about the physical safety. And I became aware that I had worked with someone who had had a past experience and that the work we did had sort of reignited memories of that experience. And I, I you know, didn't know it at the time, found out about a year later, and was kind of, kind of crushed by it, actually that that person had to experience that with me leading them through that experience. And then I was working on Angels in America, doing the fights for that. And the director, Jeff Storr, asked me to, he said, you know, you understand how bodies work together and how, you know, how movement works. Can you stage the, the scene in the park where the two men have sex over the park bench? And I was like, well, I guess I can figure that out. <laughs> And so I kind of figured it out and, you know, wish, wish I knew then what I know now, because, you know, I don't remember exactly how I staged it, but, you know, I staged it as best I could figure out, but probably not as well as I could have staged it now. Yeah. So I started doing it in, in that regard. And Jeff liked my work enough that he had me do that on several shows. And then other people would say like, Hey, can you also do that on this show? So came from fight work and being the movement person who was around. But then I started seeing that, you know, someone had written a thesis on this topic in particular, and they were writing articles about it. And I'd read the article and go like, oh, that's really good. And I I had started thinking about emotional safety, but I didn't really have a lot of language around it or a lot of process and technique to make sure it was in place other than to check in with people and hope that it was fine. (laughs) And hope that safe enough space for them to feel for them to feel yeah, like they and could it tell you yeah seemed like there was in the shows i was doing i didn't have any anybody have a you know a bad response to anything that i know of so yeah so finding out that there was an actual process and then the more i got into it the more learning about you know cuz as a as a straight white dude in theater i i didn't have a bunch of terrible experiences but 
learning about some of the experiences that others had in theater, where directors would bully and insist that they do things, reading articles about all the things that have gone on in the movies, right? Where people were surprised by what was going to be literally done to them, sort of how it was approached. Here's what is going to happen to you in this scene today, roll camera. So there was no chance for that person to prepare. There was no chance for that person to advocate for themselves. There's no chance for that person to say no. And so they just like literally got abused on a set at their work while people watch, which when you frame it that way is really, really creepy. Yeah. So, you know, learning that there was a process and that there were techniques, I started seeking out the various organizations. So I had some training with TIE, Theater Intimacy Education. And then I did some, I, I did a, a much longer workshop with IDI, which is Intimacy Directors International, which was around at the time. Uh, and I really was drawn to the, the approach and technique and the, the very forward regard for safety that IDI embraced and had put together. It just, it just connected to me and how I like to work. I like Laban because it breaks movement down into different into different things that you can identify and pull one part at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and IDI sort of approaches like, here's kind of the five, the five pieces, the five bases. So you can look at these things, like they all overlap and they all are intertwined, but you can look at sort of these things in a focus rather than just having a broad, like, here's the scene. So yeah, I was drawn to that. I did one of their workshops and it really spoke to me. And, you know, just in pursuing that, that idea of safety within storytelling and telling, you know, hard stories safely, I was really drawn to it, pursued it and wanted to, to reach the status of a certified intimacy director, not totally because of the title, the title is nice, but really because of the training that goes with the title. Because there was a lot of training that like, you know, up to a point, even though I was doing all this work, I had still never done specific training in how do you stage sex on stage, right? How do you put people's bodies together in motion so that it looks like, you know, their genitals are engaged with each other when in fact they are not? And what are sort of the the tricks and techniques for telling those stories, masking that so that the audience believes it's happening without it actually happening. So, you know, getting through and learning all those things and then sort of learning the the rules and frameworks around which you can then start to develop your own choreography and approach, right? It's sort of like the difference between you take a combat workshop and you learn how to throw a punch um, and then you know how to throw that punch when you like studied a lot more then you start to understand how the concept of that punch works into any number of other things, different kinds of punches, kicks, different kinds of strikes. And it's the same basic concept, but when you're first learning it, you learn it as like, do the technique this way. Then you sort of expand into like, oh, wait, that technique means that I can do all of these things by fully Mm -hmm. understanding the concept behind the technique. Yeah, basically going from theory to practice. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking to the emotional and mental safety of, well, actually, I was going to say of actors, but really just of company, of cast and crew and company. Can you talk a little bit about how care and empathy intersect with this work? What are some of the sort of the goalposts or the, the pillars, if you will, of, 
of how to keep people safe. Yeah, IDI sort of has has morphed. It's a different organization, but is now IDC, NFC directors and choreographers. And they follow this this idea of the five pillars that was established by IDI. They are context, which is what is the story that we are trying to tell, right? Everybody has to agree on the story so that we can all be working towards the same goal. The other part of context is you know, in addition to the story itself, the other part of context is what is the context of the space? What is the context of the location? If I'm working in a university theater in North Carolina, that's very different than working in a professional theater in, say, New York, right? There's different things you can and can't do just from societal standards. There's different things you can and can't do based on the fact that it's educational and people are younger versus people are being paid professionals. If there are, I've worked on shows where there's like a faculty member in the show, that changes things. Usually there's a director that's also one of their teachers, right? So that changes what the context is. So, so context is kind of everything and understanding that big umbrella of context, of power structure, who is, quote unquote, in charge, who has the power in the room, and how do people, like how are people sort of beholden or not to that power? Like I mentioned, the university setting, if you have a director that's also teaching your class that then could give you a bad grade, or if the show itself is a class, then that is going to affect how people respond if the director says, do this. Whereas in a different environment where there's not that kind of structure, where you've got a director and a company of professional actors, you know, the director might be a guest, the power structure is different. They don't have the same level of power. Now they do have power in that it's professional and they have power in that they can recommend this person not be hired again and that sort of thing without getting into a long dive on, on power structures. But understanding what the power structure in the room is and as the intimacy person, understanding how to work outside of it. Because you're sort of, in a weird way, you're at the bottom of the power structure because you are there to serve everyone's needs, but you're also sort of at the top of the power structure because you're the person who's going to go and tell the director that this actor can't do this and so they have to change their idea. It's, it's sort of a weird outside the power structure space. So that's context. The next is consent. And consent is the ability for a person to have control over what's going to happen to them and their body in a space. And it's different from permission. Permission can be given by anybody. A director can say, hey, why don't you grab your fellow actor? And back in the day, actor A would turn to actor B and grab them. Now we want to get consent. So actor A would turn to actor B and say, hey, is it all right if I do that? And actor B would say, actually, can you not grab my shoulders? Can you grab my bicep? So you've got a consent in the space of what is happening to the person and they get to decide. And the reasons get to be their own. You don't have to explain it because that's not really consent if you have to justify. There's a saying, yes is only a valid answer if no is equally valid. So you have to genuinely be asking if this is okay and if it's not, we're going to do something else as opposed to a performative like, you're good with that, right? Right? Because that already assumes that the answer is yes. So that's the consent piece. Then we have communication. And communication is a few things. It is both conveying 
all the things we've talked about before, conveying the context, discussing what the storyline is, what the characters, actions, motivations, responses are, being on the same page with those, but also communicating your needs, right? Saying, I need to not do that, or I need to do it this way. I need to not do it any more times today. Sometimes the number of times you do it, that's what you need to communicate because you've got, you got five times doing it in you. And after that, it starts to become a thing. You also have being aware of nonverbal communication because as much as we do the work, there are times, again, thinking back to those power structures, there are times when people will give consent when they don't actually feel comfortable giving the consent, but they feel like they need to give the consent. So they'll give the consent, right? So then when you reach in to do that grab and the person tenses up and flinches, well, that's a form of nonverbal communication that says, actually, I don't want to do this. And so then you have to know that that is communication and you stop and you check in and you confirm what's going on. Could be they were just acting the moment really well. Okay, now we've cleared that up. Now we can proceed. Or it could be that they'd really rather do it a different way, right? And so you might see that. And if I see that as the the industry director, I might just decide like, hey, actually, I've got another idea. Let's try this because I can see that this is causing a problem that the person doesn't want to divulge. The other part of communication is both communicating and understanding chain of accountability. And I always tell people when I start what the chain of accountability around me is, right? So I'm here as you know, your, your fight director, and I'm going to endeavor to do everything right by you. If you have an issue, I appreciate you coming to me and letting me know so that I can correct it. But if you feel it's something beyond that, here's who to talk to. And if you feel like, you know, talk to the stage manager, if it's a university setting where stage managers might just be students and don't have a lot of, a lot of impact, here's the director. If you think that, well, the director hired this guy, so they're chummy then here's the person that's above the director, right? Here's the department chair, here's the university HR department or the Title IX office. So I lay out what that reporting structure is and I communicate how to hold me accountable. Just doing that provides a greater sense of trust because if someone's willing to tell you how to report them, they're probably not out to do things that are reportable, right? If somebody is you know, in a space because they really hope that they can hook up with the actresses, they're probably not going to lay out a reporting system. (laughs) Historically, there have been a lot of people, fellow actors, directors, artistic directors, producers, who sort of see theater as a, a place to make connections like sexual connections or dating connections. And often in really unhealthy ways. If you haven't read the article on Profiles Theater in Chicago, yeah, um, yeah from what, like 10 years ago almost now, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a horrifying article, but it's out there and it's not, it's not, it an not a one-off. Yes. Yeah. It's not a, like this happened to this one time. That is a fairly endemic to theater thing. The further you get away from having any kind of oversight. So when you get into sort of like community theater spaces where somebody made their own company and they're the person in charge, and they answer to themselves. And they're funding it, and yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more room for that kind of abusive behavior when they're part of a structured system that, you know, has an organization and a board and an HR department, then there are more avenues to hold them accountable. And so it is 
marginally less likely, but given the way theater has progressed over all the years, not unlikely. Absolutely. Word it that way. So that's communication. Then we have choreography. And choreography is the laying out of the movement. So we're going to specifically lay out what the movement is, because one of the problems of the past is that on stage, an actor would decide to do whatever they felt in the moment. And that could look like anything and could very easily violate someone else's space, right? I went to a workshop one time and a production had just closed and the students had questions because they said they had an actor and on, so it was, a, it was a, a character and a servant character. And the character is supposed to be advancing sexually on the servant character. And that actor would every night do what they were moved to do. So sometimes it meant burying their face in the actress's chest. Sometimes it meant grabbing her buttocks. Sometimes it meant reaching up her skirt. Like, and so the actress never knew what to expect walking on stage. And a lot of those things were not okay, right? So we have choreogra- choreography because choreography can be held accountable. The moves were step one, two, three, four, five. On step four, you did something different. That's not the choreography, right? And so, you know, if, if there are, sometimes choreography can shift, right? You get comfortable doing something and you go, actually, we could move that a little higher up on the leg now that, you know, now that I trust you, basically. We have a saying, move at the speed of trust. If we do our, and I love that expression, if we do our jobs right, what tends to happen is as we're working through the process, the choreography opens up and it becomes sort of more expressive and more people are willing to do things that are more quote unquote dangerous. You know, they're willing to let that hand come further up the thigh, further inside the thigh, because they know it's going to be safe. You know, when we started, it might have stopped at the knee because I want to make sure that's, if that's respected, well, then, you know, a little bit above the knee would be respected, right? And we keep going until, like, we've reached the boundary where it's like, yeah, that's good. You know, that is, that is the aspect of choreography. And a lot of times, it's choreographing really minute things. It's choreographing breath. It's choreographing, like, a flinch that's just in the hand, right? Like, you, like when you touch something and you get a little, like, static electricity spark and you just pull mm-hmm. back a finger, right? You know, if you reach out to touch someone's bare chest and you know, you have that little flinch back, that tells a lot of story. And it's this little teeny tiny gesture, but it's really specific. And I love the specificity of the work, whether you inhale or exhale when you do it, whether it's a deep inhale or an exhale when you do it, right? You know, all these little variables tell different stories. And that part is really, really exciting to explore in terms of how can we get the best storytelling and make sure we're telling the story that we want to tell really clearly. The other thing about choreography is it keeps it, I always aim to keep a separation between the character and the actor. I don't want, for this kind of work especially, I don't want the character or the actor so immersed in the character that they can't tell the difference. Because then the actor is just experiencing whatever the character is experiencing. You know, and obviously if it's traumatic, that's bad if you're doing a scene that's like a sexual assault, but also if it's good, that can be bad because if you immerse yourself so much in your character that you think the person that you're kissing on stage, you're actually attracted to and you leave your significant other to be with that person 
And then yeah. the show ends and you realize, oops, wait, yeah. wait a minute. I actually don't like this person at all. Right. It's that immersion in character because, you know, kissing feels good. Hugging feels good. And your body right? does not know the difference. Yeah, Your brain, like there's so many nerve endings in your lips. When we do kissing, we do a training session on it. In advance, we notify like today's the day we're going to actually touch lips. And then we leave it alone and we only do it as much as the actors need to do it until we get to like dress rehearsal. Because your your lips have like a direct line to your brain and your brain goes, this is nice, right? And you can literally confuse your brain into believing things that are pretend because you're going through the physical actions of doing the things that you would do if it wasn't pretend. So that's another place where choreography really helps because if I know that I'm going to do a kiss and it's going to be a three count with my head turned slightly to the side with my eyes open and one hand sliding down the back of the shoulder, right? Well, that's a lot of information I got to keep track of. And so I'm not going to be so fully immersed because I'm still going through the steps of the choreography. So it provides a little layer of separation, right? You can still connect to all that motion. And the way I develop choreography, all of that is connected through impulse of what the character thinks they would do next. But it is still a specific sequence that you're following so that you know that you're not just like going for it, right? In the past, a lot of times directors would send two people off into a, a private space, terrible idea, and say, you two go figure out how to do this makeout scene. Happened to me. And, yep. And they'd go off and they would figure out how to make out, which is weird, right? And then they come back in and then it's not driven by character or story. It's two people, two people making out on stage, which is, you know, when you see it, it's like, this is weird. This is uncomfortable. And like, all of a sudden, I don't feel like we're in the show anymore. Right? Yeah. So, you know, those are all benefits of choreography and also that it's accountable. So if it does go awry, you can examine why it went awry. If it went awry because someone's hand slipped and it was a genuine mistake, cool. Well, we've checked in on it now and we're going to not have that happen again. If it continues to happen, something needs to change. If it's a situation where, you know, the balance of the person is such that their hand is going to slip because their balance is off, then we need to change the choreography. If it's an issue where one actor really feels like that's what they should do, we can discuss changing the choreography, but we might even get as far as needing to change the actor if they're not respecting the other actor's boundaries, right? So that's sort of a last resort, but is on the table. You know, if you don't perform the choreography as written, if you go outside the choreography and you're doing things that are endangering your fellow actor, then you can be removed, which is another thing that will give it that sheen of keeping you a little separate from your character. So that's choreography. And then the last one is closure. Closure is sort of the end. There's also a little bit at the beginning where you sort of go into the space. And the idea is that you define when you are starting the work. Right. So right now we are going to start working on this scene. Right. And now we're starting the work. We're not people who are friends who know each other and hanging out in the hall, sharing a coffee. We're now working on this scene. It doesn't mean we can't be friends, but Mm -hmm. we're in the work. And then when the work is done, we have closure to say, boom, that was the work. The work is over. Now we can go back to whatever we were doing with our lives. 
right? In other words, and identifying maybe, what the context is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 And maybe you were friends before. And so you, you know, you tap out of it and you go back to, you know, your friend relationship. Maybe you barely know each other and you're doing a really intimate, sensual scene. And then you tap out of it. And you're like, okay, cool. See you tomorrow. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that idea of creating a structure to be able to step away from the work and really compartmentalize and separate the work from your life so that you don't confuse your brain. And there's sort of an immediate closure of we are now stopping the work. And I always like to set up something that involves several factors. Eye contact, an expression of gratitude. So, you know, thank you for your work. I even like to go so far as to have them say thank you for your acting work to just reinforce that this was acting. Some kind of tactile element. So you'll do like a high five uh, and a breath element. So like you'll make eye contact, you'll breathe together, you'll thank each other for your work, and then you'll do like high five because it's also got that percussive element that's like now we have stopped, right? There's a definitive moment that you can point to that's the end as opposed to, yeah, that was great. That was really cool. That was fun. Yeah, we should, that was a good scene. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess I'll see you tomorrow. Like when did that end? Right. It does. It didn't have a definitive like period at the end of the sentence. So giving it that really distinct. Now, sometimes you'll work on scenes that connect to you emotionally and you need more personal closure. So we create closure practices that allow you to get back to connecting with your actual reality as opposed to the make-believe reality you've spent the last however many hours in, especially if it connects to something in your life that is unpleasant or potentially traumatic. So you want to make sure that you're not, you're keeping that separate and not reliving the trauma. Things like spend time with a pet, a little furry ball of like empathy consent, right? you know, warm bubble baths. I'm a big fan of things that remind you of reality and things that remind you of who you are. So I'll get people to pick a song that is a song that they really connect to. And it can be, you know, it can be something that's inspirational for them. It can be their like screw the world song that, you know, they like to sing angry loud in the car. It can be the song that just makes them feel super happy, but it's something they've had as part of their life for a long time, way before the show. And when you go to leave, that's the first thing you play in the car. And maybe you play it a few times, right? But it reminds you of who you were before this process. So you're connecting back to your reality versus this imagined reality. There's a, there's a five senses one where you, you take your five senses in any order, and then you pick five things to touch, four things to hear, three things to see. And you take, you know, you touch five things and you do it with like real intention. Like, like I'm at a table and I'm feeling the edge of the table and there's a little seam here and I can just barely make out the wood grain in the surface of the texture. Right. And then I would move on to another thing and I would feel it with that level of intentionality. And you get about halfway through this process and you start going like, Oh, right. This is real. I can literally touch this. I can literally smell this. This is real. What I was doing before was not getting that separation and getting back to who you are so that you can be in a safe place. And I would just like to share, you know, closure also happens, you know, can happen within performance. You know, I worked on a show recently where as the intimacy director, I needed to help the actor. I ended up helping stage 
a panic attack that was occurring on stage. So, you know, going back to intimacy has several definitions and you know mm-hmm. is, has a huge umbrella under which things fall. This actor was looking for strategies to not actually end up having a panic attack as they had had one before in real life. And then, you know, we had to sort of set up a structure and, you know, and then I said, I will return when you are on set so that we can trace sort of your steps and where you have time to actually do a closure practice within performance. And that was a really interesting process to go through with that actor because I, myself, personally, Lamerev has, have also had panic attacks. And, you know, once you're in one, I don't want to say there's no escape, but there's sort of a process to, to getting out of one or getting through one, I should say. Mm-hmm. And the idea that someone could maybe have one on stage and then like have to be in one while continuing to perform yeah, it's just yeah. really <laughs> terrifying and, and unsettling to me. And so I definitely felt I felt an extra personal investment in making sure that this actor was not triggered in that process. And so just wanted to say to listeners, you know, this closure practice, it has a role in rehearsal and it can also have a very, very important function in performance, which is wild. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Similarly, I did a show that was was a monologue, and they called me in to, to be the industry director for the monologue. And I was like, "Huh," because everything <laughs> that I'd done before that was two people, you know, bodies touching bodies. But they brought me in because it was a like a nine page recounting of the character's sexual assault as a child, and so it was really intense. And so we did the same thing. We choreographed like how she would like slide her hand up her arm and hug herself and rock. And we even structured that that show used a lot of music from a specific band. So I went and I found music from that band that was in the show. And I was like, okay, at this point in it, we're going to follow this tempo structure from this song. So again, it was separating. So it's like, oh, here's where I'm doing the part in the song where it goes like this in a rhythm. So it wasn't, I'm delving so deep into my psyche of this that I'm just like spiraling downward. And then the same thing, we got to the end of it and the actor would sit at a table, run their hand across a book that was on the table that had a bumpy cover to get to a glass of water that usually had sweat on it by that point, pick up the water, take a sniff of it, drink it, let the taste of it and the coolness of it hit their tongue set it back down. And this theater had a really noisy air conditioning unit. They would set it back down and then they would listen for the air conditioner unit. And then they would let out a big exhale. When they let out the big exhale, lights would come up. So they were able to have this little process to be able to engage with the rest of the show. And then when they got to their closure at the end of the show, they weren't still carrying all that energy from the middle of the show. Mm -hmm. So that end of show closure became much easier. And the actor had a closure practice on stage. I think that even that is sort of a, it might be a foreign concept to some people. Like, you know, in my example, the actor did get a moment off stage before they had to come back on. But Mm -hmm. in that, in a monologue show, in a solo piece, there is no, you're basically it. And so, you know, you, you know, it could have been an option, like maybe the actor will leave stage for a second, but in this case there wasn't. So you had to build something that, would keep the actor on stage and yet still provide closure for them. So, yeah. Yeah. 
And closure is for everybody because we think we tend to focus on the actors, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're the ones that are that are acting it out. But when there's trauma, there's three groups of people who experience it. There's the the person who who causes it. There's the person who receives it. So if you want to put that into like an attacker and victim kind of category, but then there's also the witness, right? You can be traumatized by seeing something. The stage management team in particular, the crew, the stage management team, they've got to watch this scene every single night. They have to engage with it as much as the performers do, but without the ability to walk up and like tap out with them. I check in a lot with specifically the stage management team, but anybody who's on crew as well. And I have had on that same show, I had somebody who was in the the management team who said like, I don't feel right at the end of this show because it connects to stuff from my past, but I have to drive home immediately after and I've got an hour drive. What can I do? And that was, that was actually where I developed the music one because that, that ASM had a real strong connection to music. And I was like, great. What's a song that you, you know, you don't have to tell me the song, but what's a song that you really connect to? And so we created, we basically choreographed a closure practice that that person would do every night so that they could let go of what they had been part of, right? So yeah, when you're, when you're setting up closure practices, don't forget your team, your whole team. Excellent. This has been awesome. What steps would you suggest artists take to bring consent-focused approaches into their communities? I would start by reaching out to intimacy professionals, intimacy directors. I, I know that I personally, and I can't speak for everyone, I can only speak for myself, I personally am very willing to have a conversation with people about what best practices look like. And sometimes even just knowing what a best practice looks like gives you a framework for a structure that you just might not have known about before. Sure. Um, you know, if you if you have some time and, you know, a little bit of money, see if there's a limited workshop that you can do with somebody, bring somebody in for a show or a session to explain how this works. There's a lot of, we take a lot of our, especially around consent practice, we take a lot of our ideas from consent practices around sexual health, right? We use the FRIES acronym that they use when they're teaching, you know, kids about what consent means in relationships. Consent is consent. It's sort of the same concept, whether it's, you know, within a relationship or within this acting relationship. So you can look to some of that to understand how consent works. And then basically the way to bring it into a space is just before you engage, you check in. You know, and you you allow the person an opportunity consent to what's going to happen with the understanding that no is a a viable answer. And if you get no, then we're going to adjust. One of the things that we sort of battle against in in theater, it sort of comes from improv. The first rule of improv is yes, yes and, and right, right, and so that carries over to theater, right? Well, you don't want to say you got to be yes and because we got to accept all ideas and move forward. Well. In intimacy, the first rule is no but. So can I do this? No, but you could do this. It allows the person to have agency and define how they're going to be engaged with while still keeping the process moving. 
right? Because the concern is like, well, but if people say no in rehearsal all the time, it'll just be dead in the water. Like, oh, can we do this? No. And then you got nowhere to go. So, you know, can I shake you violently by the shoulders? No, but you could grab my arm and pull it towards you and shake that because maybe the person has a bad neck and shaking them violently by the shoulders would be literally painful, right? Now, you don't get to ask them why. That's their own information. They may just not like it. Their reasons are their own, but they have the ability to offer an alternative solution, right? That alternative solution does not have to be accepted. Then you can make a counter offer, either from, you know, from a standpoint of, well, your counter offer sort of violates my boundaries and my sense of safety, so I'm going to make another counter offer, or your counter offer doesn't tell the story that we're trying to sell, so maybe we'll have a counter offer that that goes back to a different story. So, but that leads to conversation and development. And I always like to say, like, my first idea is not usually my best idea, right? So if my first idea is to grab somebody by the shoulder and they say, no, but you could take my wrist. Okay, so that's going to mean a different dynamic. So that's going to evolve a different way than the most obvious choice of grabbing the shoulder, right? And so you usually end up developing much better work. So for people who are worried that it stifles creativity, it actually engenders and enhances creativity and helps it blossom. I find. And performers have agency over the decision-making. It always is, you know, when some of it, when I choreograph just regular dances and the students are just goofing off and I'm like, oh, you like that dance? Okay, let's put that in an eight count. And then, you know, they feel that they have contributed, that they have contributed to the performance in a more meaningful way also. So... Absolutely. Yeah. And from a very practical choreographic standpoint, if I come in and I say like, okay, you're going to do this. You're going to walk over here. You're going to draw your sword. You're going to make these three cuts, cut, cut, cut. Then you do a parry. Then you do a cut, right? I can do all that. And they're going to go like, huh, okay, I'll do the choreography. I don't know why I'm doing it, but I'm, I'll, I'll go through those motions. And when you see it on stage, it will look like somebody is going through the choreography. If I get with them and I say, who do you think attacks first and where do you think you go? And the person says, I think I am enraged and I'm just going to start swinging wildly. Well, that's their idea. They're going to connect to that idea. They're not going to forget that choreography, Mm -hmm. right? And it'll be driven from a a character point of view and a story point of view better than if something is prescribed to them. Back, Back when I would sit down and write out all the choreography in advance and then go in and teach people the choreography, there would be times they would forget they'd go up on the choreography. They'd be like, I don't know what I do next. Because they hadn't embodied it, it didn't make sense to their bodies why they would make that next move. So by having that conversation, by having that agency, you get better choreography that's easier for the performers to perform and easier for them to remember. In my book, that's all around better. I agree. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's always great to talk to you, cousin. Oh, love it. Thank you so much for having me. Established in 2017, Artist Soapbox is a podcast production studio based in North Carolina. Artist Soapbox produces original scripted audio fiction and an ongoing interview podcast about the creative process. We cultivate aspiring audio dramatists and producers, and we partner with organizations and individuals to create new audio content. 
For more information and ways to support our work, check out artistsoapbox.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The Artist Soapbox theme song is Ashes by Juliana Finch.